Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have sashayed our way into Thursday. Uh, it is, of course, a big day for us here at Talk TV because every day is a big day for us here at Talk TV. The audience is growing. Uh, the people who are finding us are flocking to us, working out that actually this is the one place to find the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The one place uh, where you can rely on what we say. Uh, we are not the BBC. We do not inflate climate figures. We do not push out narratives which turn out to be untrue and then refuse to apologise for them. Because, of course, at the end of the day, that's what the BBC is good for. They've got a business correspondent who basically uh, parroted a story that was given to him uh, by banking executives. We might even know which banking executives gave it to him uh, about Nigel Farage and Coots Bank, basically making out uh, that the reason he didn't have an account anymore at Coots was because he didn't have enough money. Uh, Cue all sorts of lefty ex-BBC types like John Sopel guffawing with laughter at how ridiculous the whole situation was uh, and how tragic it was for Nigel Farage. Well, now the shoe appears to be on the other foot. Sopel's gone very quiet. The BBC have failed to apologise for a a false story that they peddled around the world about a politician uh, who should be treated an awful lot better in this country than he actually is. Isabel Oakshot, our international editor, she's going to be kicking us off uh, on the story that the government may now step in and actually change the rules and make it impossible for banks like Coots to kick people out and refuse them uh, access to an account because they don't like their politics, because that, plain and simple, is what it is all about. Coots, as a bank, has pretty much not just shot itself in the foot, but completely decapitated itself and acted like some kind of deranged communist organisation saying people have to be retrained, saying that people might have to be re-educated, saying that if you don't have our values, which apparently mean that you have to recognise that women have a penis, that Remain was the only way you should have voted, uh, and that Brexit is evil personified, that if you don't like all of those things, then you can't have a bank account. Well, what? A load of old cobblers. Quite simply, absolute and utter rubbish. And I think if heads do not roll uh, in Coots and at NatWest, I think they're going to have a very, very big problem indeed. You remember Gerald Ratner when he said that some of their stuff was crap? Uh, well, the same thing could happen to NatWest. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. We'll talk as well uh, about what's going on uh, with the illegal migrant situation too. We've got plenty to say about that. And also, the other BBC narrative, which is completely fake and false, is the climate narrative. People are going on holiday, having a lovely time. They're getting in touch with me from Greece, from Italy, from Spain, saying how lovely the weather is and how much they're enjoying it. 
and instead you get the BBC threatening that you're basically going to die of heat exhaustion if you go anywhere south of Tunbridge Wells. Absolutely unbelievable. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Rod Little is here as well. He's going to be joining us a little bit later on. And what about the great motorist rebellion kicked off yesterday uh, by somebody who rather unwisely took a swing at a Just Stop World protester. You can understand why they got frustrated. You can understand why people are getting more and more mad about all of this. Because when you see the people who are demonstrating, including doctors, by the way, uh, who took five days off work to go on strike and who are now joining uh, the Just Stop World marches, is it any wonder the NHS is in the mess that it's in? We'll talk about that as well, because £128,000 doctors are going on strike today to stop you from being fixed up by the NHS because they think they should get more money. Incredible. This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. It's the Independent Republic. Let's get it on. A very good Thursday morning to you and welcome to the home of common sense. Let us talk to Isabel Oakeshott uh, and get her points to view on a variety of things, including uh, the ludicrous Coots Bank. Isabel, very good morning to you. Morning. I'm a, I am a bit worried, Mike, because I'm off to Morocco on Sunday. <laughs> I mean, do you think I might be burnt to a charcoal? Well, do you know, if, if you look at the BBC weather um, uh, Twitter account, they say that it's going to be about 50 degrees in Morocco. Uh, but Mike. I've actually been checking the North African actual weather and it's about 37, 36 around there. So I think you'll have a lovely time. You might want to take some factor 30 or 50 or whatever it is. Uh, but basically, you'll have a wonderful holiday. You'll be nice and hot, uh, unlike the way it's going to be here, which is going to be damp and wet and held up by Just Stop Oil protesters. Well, what people need to do is they need to look at the actuality versus what all these um, doomsday reports are saying, which is about temperatures being expected yes. to a certain amount. When you actually go back to what organisations like the Met Office and others have been saying are expected to happen versus what actually happened. You see there's a huge divergence Mm. there. Quite often, some organisations are getting it about 30% wrong, uh, which is quite a lot when you're talking about temperatures. And isn't it it interesting that these same people are the ones who are predicting all manner of terrible things in other circumstances, like, for example, uh, how many people are going to die from COVID? And I'm sorry to lump it all together, but it kind of goes that way, doesn't it? I, I agree with you. I mean, I haven't really wanted to lump all of this stuff together, and nor have I wanted to ever feel or be a conspiracy theorist. But... It sort of feels overwhelming sometimes, doesn't it? Mm. The amount of absolute twaddle that is being we're all being subjected to. And you start thinking, you know, are you living in some kind of parallel universe? I mean, yesterday my daughter handed me a coin, um, having noticed that it's got some pride logo oh, on yes. it. The 50 pence pride coin. I mean, really? I feel like I'm in some kind of re-education camp. Mm. I'm being I'm being told what I should think wherever I turn. Um, and if I'm not careful, I'll probably be debanked like mm. Nigel Farage. Well, exactly right. And when you look into the actual dossier on Nigel Farage, put together by what you would otherwise describe as, you know, regular business people, bankers, people who do, you know, an awful lot of commercial uh, work, who, who make millions and millions of pounds for their customers, to actually put into a document like that the fact that Nigel Farage may have sung Hitler Youth songs when he was a child, um, that he's some kind of xenophobe, that by being friendly with an internet national superstar tennis player is somehow dangerous you think is this really how you people think 
And I'm afraid it actually is how they think. You can just picture them. I mean, I heard Nigel Farage on talk uh, this morning with Julia Hartley Brewer, mm. and he was describing the way these people sit round in their um, nice dinner parties in North London, chin stroking and, um, and essentially depicting anyone who doesn't share their so-called values and views as uh, as a deplorable uh, as as, mm. a, as followers were condemned to be uh, in America. That's what they think of those of us who have a rather different view of the mm. world than they do. We're deplorable, we're unmentionable, we're untouchable, and we're not worthy of fundamental services like banking, which is not a kind of pick and choose situation. I mean, of course, nobody has to bank with coots, and I should hope that a fair few people who already bank with them are thinking of leaving mm. them. Um, and hopefully very few people will want to actually apply for an account because who knows what um, monitoring may go on of their of their views. I mean, this has been an absolute PR disaster. Mm. For, and I have been surprised and heartened um, that uh, certain um, people and, and political parties, including the Conservatives, who are normally very disparaging of Nigel Farage, and, and as you rightly referenced in your intro, um, treat him very badly, have actually rallied around on this issue. I mean, partly not least because the Chancellor himself uh, appeared to be at risk of being debanked. Yes. So this isn't just a, a Farage problem. It is a problem about the way our society is going, that if you don't hold certain views, then you're deemed to be some somehow unworthy, an outsider. Yeah, interesting, isn't it, as well, um, that they think, I think that, that, that Coots got this one wrong, because like Hillary Clinton in her deplorables campaign, she got it wrong too, because actually the majority of Americans voted for Donald Trump in that instance, and they didn't care whether they, they were thought to be deplorables. Similarly here, um, I think the bank miscalculated massively. They thought everybody outside of their office thought the way they did, and guess what? They don't. They really don't. And I think these people just have no idea. You know, they are not in the real world. Get out of London. Get to some of the tougher mm. parts of the UK. It is a whole different world out there. People are really struggling. And, you know, they see the impact of uh, effectively what we've had, which is open borders for the last few years. Mm. It's not that but in reality pretty much anyone can come here if they want to using a variety of different routes that is having a huge impact on communities up and down the country it's affecting the job market it's distorting uh, the labor market it's affecting wages it's as we all know putting pressure on public services and Nigel Farage has been at the forefront of highlighting that. And sorry for the people in leafy Islington, you know, who run places like Coots Bank. Um, it may be news to them, but not everybody lives like they do. I tell you what, though, I've got a piece of breaking news which you may or may not know about and you may or may or not have seen. But uh, this is truly extraordinary. John Sopel. Uh, has apologised to Nigel Farage. Uh, he's put a tweet out just before we started this show. Uh, Dear Nigel, I always believe when I get things wrong, I own up to it. I got it wrong. Sorry, that will teach me to trust reporting of my old employer. If your political views were even part of the reason why the account was suspended from Goots, that is totally reprehensible. John. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that is Sorry to give it the extra uh, publicity of reading it out on Talk TV. Thanks, John. Yeah. That is a moment. I'm, I mean, his the way that he sneered mm. and 
cheered and were so gleeful at the report that perhaps Nigel Farage didn't have enough money to bank at Coots was really horrible. It was pathetic, it was, wasn't it? It was pathetic, but it was so utterly uh, characteristic of those types of people mm. that and jeer at anyone who voted for Brexit or anyone who doesn't share their uh, views on immigration. So good for him that he has apologised. But where's the apology, crucially, from Simon Jack, the business editor at the BBC, very respected reporter, you know, he's very experienced. Here's what he did, though. He ran a story that was completely inaccurate based on one flaky, it now seems, source Um, Whether or not, we don't know who that source was, though there's very interesting um, speculation about who it might have been, somebody that he sat next to at a dinner, a very senior figure uh, at NatWest. He should not have run the story based only on that one source, something that the BBC has quite often criticised me for doing, uh, on stories that, by the way, have actually got right more often than they seem to. He shouldn't have done that. But even having said that, once he knew that his story was flaky and dodgy, he didn't withdraw the story. That story kept Mm. on running on the BBC after Simon Jack had been contacted by multiple people telling him that they hardly had anything in their Coots account and they were continued they were still being offered a service. Mm. So he should not have allowed the story to continue running in the way it did. Um, And this is just, bottom line is that that was a piece of spin. And the BBC is not supposed to run stories like that. I'm not saying that they necessarily intended to get it wrong, but having been told that they were wrong, they should have withdrawn it. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree with you more. We'll come back to this in a little while. But just to remind everybody what John Sopel's original comment was, he said, uh, you must feel a bit of a Charlie if you're Nigel Farage and you claim that it's all an establishment stitch up that your account's been closed when it's just that you're not rich enough for coots. I'm thinking of starting a GoFundMe page for Nigel to get him his account back. Yeah, you feel a little bit of a Charlie if you're John Sobel and you didn't do your research properly and you put that tweet out and now you're having to make a humble, grovelling apology. So, yeah, there's only one Charlie here. Exactly right. And we'll be back with more on the other Charlies that have gone on strike today, calling themselves doctors, uh, but not doing any work, unfortunately. Isabel Oakeshott and I back after this. Nationwide, by your side, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Got a great piece of breaking news for you here as well. Um, it's being broken by Politics UK. Apparently, uh, there's a group of Just Stop Oil protesters who have been made to sit down uh, on a pavement and they are currently being surrounded by people who are calling themselves Just Stop Peeing Everyone Off and they're stopping them from moving anywhere so they can't actually slow march, which I think is a pretty uh, classical way of dealing with Just Stop Oil. Perhaps it could catch on when you just corral them into one particular spot and they can't go anywhere. Yeah, let's kettle them. Um, are you sure that our colleague Richard Tice isn't down there? I mean, he's been getting increasingly frustrated lately, and yesterday was confronting the police, I telling saw them that. exactly what section of which law they should be using right. to stop people. Um, but no, I'm loving this idea. I'm, I'm very happy to come and be part of an operation mm. 
helps kettle the just stop oil protesters. Um, let's get them. Let's you know, if the authorities won't do this, then people will take yeah. the into their own hands. And it sounds this is genius because it's peaceful. It's very no peaceful. Just that it's just literally surrounding them so they can't move. Brilliant. Um, just to go back to the banking story for a moment, the, the mail this morning uh, saying a new law will curb banks that shut down your account. Are you confident that something like that will happen? I'm not actually. I mean, I'm, I've just got way too many years in this game of political reporting to have any confidence that anything the government announces amid a blaze of publicity mm. at the time that the heat is on actually materialises in the way that they suggest it will initially. What happens is as soon as the caravan has moved on, and we all know it doesn't take long um, for everybody to get interested in something else, uh, the whole thing gets subject to a whole load of small print, mm. which once you examine it means it's not worth a row of beans. You know, they just wanted to be able to say they're doing something. So it's going to take an awful lot of pressure um, to make sure that anything that is proposed actually is actually um, anything more than a paper tiger. Um, and I think Nigel Farage um, on Julia Hartley Brewer's show this morning was absolutely right in demanding a number of very, very clear steps now um, in terms of the Treasury Committee, Select Committee reconvening. Uh, Parliament is now heading for a very long summer recess. This can't, this issue is too important to lapse now uh, until the autumn. Uh, and then there is, of course, the fear that will be into the run, long run up to the next general election and very little will actually get done. No, of course. Before we talk about the EU and calling the Falklands the Malvinas uh, with your uh, international hat on, what about the doctor's strike today? We've had five days of junior doctors on strike, uh, one day in between, and now um, some um, consultants on strike. But of course, it's important, I think, to remember that they're not all on strike. It's the British Medical Association or the British Marxist Association, as I like to call them, uh, who have got some of them out because 128 grand a year uh, to begin with is not enough for them. Well, unfortunately, even a few, a handful going on strike has a terrible impact on frontline services because there aren't enough of them anyway. Uh, so I, you know, I've, I've long said that I think doctors and nurses need to be paid substantially more if we are going to save the NHS, to make the NHS a service that can be relied upon to consistently provide a very good, even a decent standard of care uh, to everybody. We're going to need to pay those doctors and nurses a lot more. And we can. We, that doesn't mean we need a bigger budget for the NHS. We can find ways of um, being more efficient uh, right across the board, but particularly with all the nonsense and silly, unnecessary jobs mm. like direct experience. Yes. So... Um, yes, they should have more money, but strikes are deplorable when you work in uh, the medical profession, and I don't think they should be doing it. No, I don't think they should be doing it either, but I do take my hat off to those who are not doing it, because I suspect they're in the majority, even though uh, this will be a yeah. difficult time. Uh, let's talk about the European Union, because just when you thought that, you know, maybe they might have grown up a little bit, maybe they might have become slightly less babyish and childish. No, no, no. Uh, if you're going to go and do a summit in somewhere like Central or South America, you must refer uh, to the Falkland Islands as the Malvinas, obviously. I mean, where do you begin with the EU? Isn't it a reminder about why we left? Yeah. You know, the whole decision to leave the EU doesn't get enough positive publicity uh, because of the way that it's been executed and because of how very difficult everybody who didn't want us to leave has made it to make a success of it. 
But ultimately, this is just a little insight into why uh, we were right to leave in the first place. Mm. Look, the vast majority, time after time, research has shown the vast majority of people in the Falklands do not want to leave their association with the UK. Uh, so this is a nonsense and it just tells you everything you need to know about the political mindset of those in Brussels. Mm. And isn't it interesting to tie it all back in and as you say, we don't want to do this, but you kind of find yourself doing it, that the entire Coots banking scandal that they brought upon themselves has been entirely driven by hatred of Nigel Farage, a hatred of Brexit, a hatred of the ordinary people of this country who decided that self-determination was more important than being part of some elitist organisation that only the upper classes could be a part of. And I mean, it just doesn't go, will it ever stop, do you think, this kind of madness? Somehow or other, we have got to not get overwhelmed by this, not get depressed by it, not give up, mm. because otherwise they will have won mm. and they will go on crowing and you'll get likes of John Sopel putting out more gleeful tweets like that once he's had his little uh, day of being a bit humble pie, which won't last very long. No. Um, he is just representative of a huge number of uh, pompous elites, mostly in London, but they are all over the place. Mm cannot resist any opportunity uh, to finger wag at the rest of us about why people were wrong to vote for Brexit and what a disaster it's all been and so on and so forth. Or well, any aspect of it that's been a disaster is almost entirely because they were so determined to make it so. Mm. So we now have a choice. We can either feel as if this is impossible and just give up and let them essentially move us back into the EU in all but name. Or we can stand firm and say that we were absolutely right. There were powerful, utterly compelling and over, overwhelming reasons why 17.4 million people voted for Brexit. They weren't wrong. They weren't stupid. They knew in their hearts that something was very wrong about our membership of this organisation. And we need to double down and let's make a success of it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One final thought for you. Oxford Street, um, a pretty eyesore making a visitation recently. I was like, I'm walking up and down it thinking this place looks awful. Apparently London wants to revamp Oxford Street uh, and as a result, revive the West End. Now, I don't know how they've let it go to such a bad extent with all these horrible, you know, sort of candy shops and American candy shops and kind of cheap watch salesmen and places that offer you a COVID test for 12 quid. You know, where did it all go wrong? Well, this is ripe for a huge investigation and expose. These candy shops are a front. They yeah. are, I am certain, something to do with money laundering. You only have to go in there. I spent a significant amount of time in several of these places in the heart of London's West End in the last couple of weeks. And you've got to look at the stock in there. And it is as dodgy as anything. Hmm. You've got boxes of cereal there, French cereal, being sold, being marketed for like 18 pounds. You know, the equivalent right. of a pack of Rice Krispies. 18 pounds, anyone? You know, in amongst... 90% of the stock in there is ridiculously and absurdly overpriced. It is not priced to sell. Mm. They've got a few sample items that are sort of perhaps vaguely within a bracket that might be normal. You know, I'm thinking of packets of Haribo mm. happen to be 
very familiar with how much they cost because the kids love them. Um, you might pay £1.50 in Sainsbury's, £3.50 in one of these American candy shops. Mm. But the cereal, the biscuits, it's all off the chart. You know, 20 quid for this stuff. It's a nonsense. It's a racket and it needs to be exposed. Well, hopefully, if they do revamp the proper, uh, what used to be Oxford Street Shopping Centre, it will have proper shops in it, and it will, won't attract the kind of people that it currently attracts, which is kids who seem to run in and out of shops just stealing stuff, you know, at will, and nobody stops them. Yeah, absolutely right. I was actually in a branch of Boots, the chemist, in um, a very nice part of North Oxford, and almost the entire makeup racks in there were empty. Um, you know, the, in fact, much of the shop was empty and it was like Moscow in there. Um, and I asked the cashier, what is going on? You know, and I was expecting him to say, well, you know, the usual supply chain issues or something. And he actually said, we've had to empty the shelves right. because we're getting so many kids stealing. Mm. It's I incredible. Mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I said, well, do you actually get the police in and he says oh i don't know above my pay grade and so on well the only answer to that should be yes uh, and we shouldn't let this go because otherwise it just balloons yeah absolutely right well listen um so much to talk about um we we've got to stop unfortunately but good to see you isabel thank you very much indeed isabel oakshaw international editor here at talk tv with a great many talking points that we will pick up on over the course of the next uh, two and a half hours coming next climate change Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up, we're going to be talking about a great many things, including, of course, what we talked about with Kevin O'Sullivan, uh, this ridiculous rise in on-the-spot fines being handed out uh, by local councils. And here's one from Kim in Blackpool. She said, speaking of councils raking in money, did you know that if you have an elderly loved one and they die in their sleep, if they haven't seen a doctor in the last 28 days, the death has to be referred to the coroner for a post-mortem. If you don't want your loved one carved up, you can elect for a scan instead and pay 540 pounds i've just lost my mother aged 85 years and i just paid the money but i'm furious it isn't about the money because i can afford it but there are people who may not be able to afford it i also found out that my mum hasn't seen an actual doctor for over five years she has only ever seen a paramedic or a health practitioner and that is ridiculous isn't it absolutely ridiculous but we'll talk about that because apparently you can be fined for climbing trees you can be fined for swearing you can be fined for kite flying and even bird feeding and all these local councils have handed out thousands and thousands of these fines to people. Um, my advice to you uh, is to seek advice on whether you can avoid paying it. And just if you say, look, I don't want to pay it, uh, I want to challenge it, we'll find out for you exactly what that would mean. Um, and we'll tell you exactly what you should do. Uh, but let's talk to Ross Clark now, author of Not Zero, because uh, there's a fantastic... Uh, video currently doing the rounds about the Just Stop Oil Brigade. Apparently they're being corralled by another group of very, very well-meaning representatives of this country who are saying, we're not going to let you move. We're not going to let you slow walk. You're going to sit there on the ground. And you're just going to stay there all day and we'll just stand around and not allow you out of the little human circle that we have made. Ross, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. This is a great development. I don't know whether you've seen the video yet uh, out there currently on social media, but uh, the great British public taking the law into their own hands, not by punching Just Stop Oil this time, but by just standing and sort of corralling. Oh, here we are. We can look at it now. Corralling them and just not letting them get out of that little circle, which I think is a brilliant um, innovation. Well, it's a tactic that the police employed in um, anti-capitalist demonstrations in the 2000s mm. called called kettling, mm. if you remember, where they um, 
the police just kept these protesters in an, a very enclosed areas and wouldn't let them leave until they were virtually begging to be, leave and so they couldn't cause trouble elsewhere and yes. so on. But, um, you know, I, I would say I, I'm no great fan of vigilantism and, you know, it can erupt into very nasty sort of business. But, you know, in, in a civilised society, we we um we we accept that we, we don't take the law into our hands. But part of the deal is that, you know, we expect the police and the courts to take action instead. And, you know, with Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, Insulate Britain, you know, we've seen the sort of you know, police just standing back, not taking um, any kind of action, just watching and mm. even joining in the sort of dancing in some, you know, Extinction Rebellion protests in 2019. And, you know, it's really not on, you know, it is the duty of the police to um, enforce the law. Um, you know, everyone has a right to protest, but you don't have a right to obstruct people going about their lawful day-to-day mm. -day duty. But also, you don't have a right to do it on a daily basis, day in, day out, in the same city. And I think that is what is different about these demonstrations. And I think all of those people like yourself who say everybody's got the right to demonstrate, well, yes, but you haven't got the right to do it like this, I don't think. No, you haven't. I mean, you know, there's a very big difference between protesting, you know, holding your placards or having a, you know, organised march and so on, mm. and doing what Extinction Rebellion and all these groups have been doing for years, which is, you know, to obstruct some people. And, you know, look what happened when finally the police and the courts took action against those protesters who were blocking the M25. And there was three who had climbed a gantry and they were sent down to prison for about three years, I mm. think. Um, and those M25 protests stopped at that point because, you know, protesters realised it was not worth the risk of, um, you know, blocking motorways when they'd be sent to jail for three years. Now, why are we not repeating or why are the police not repeating that um, now? And, um, you know, with, with these street, endless street protests and yeah. the stopping sports. Well, what we saw yesterday was, was, was the sort of the, the, the extreme end of it, I suppose. And, and as we've said before, um, we absolutely sympathise with the guy who got involved in the punch-up. But, but you wouldn't want to see too much of that. But, but there were no police anywhere to be seen. And I said yesterday, this has surely got to be placed very much at the door of the police. The police have to be there to, uh, to stop these kinds of incidents from happening. Yes, and not just the police, obviously the Crown Prosecution Service, the courts and, and the whole criminal justice system. But, you know, when you've got protesters who are doing this day in, day out, they keep getting arrested, then released, or they get a sort of charge, you know, if they're charged, it's a little fine, the slap around the wrist and they're back on the street the next day. You know, if they're in jail for, th you know, you do it over and over and over again, you go down for three years and that takes you out of circulation. You can't then protest for three years mm. while you're in jail so you know the, the, we need to start you know taking action on, on that sort of level as we did indeed against that m25 yes three. i'm seeing as well that grant shaps actually has finally done something useful he's written a letter to Sir Keir starmer uh, after they spray painted the energy headquarters uh, government had uh, energy security and net zero department yesterday uh, he's asking for the labor party to pay for it uh, given that they're in support apparently of just stop oil and they're also in receipt of money from dale vince who's also a supporter of just stop oil. Yes, I mean, obviously, a bit of politicking on Grant Shapps' 
um, part. I mean, it's not really <laughs> Keir Starmer's um, <laughs> responsibility, but I wish the protesters should certainly be paying that bill and they should be fined, um, you know, large amounts as well as being sent to jail. But, um, yeah, Labour has, um, you know, Keir Starmer in recent weeks has sort of tried to move a little bit on um, Just Stop or and say he doesn't support their methods and so on. But, I mean, for... For months and months, I mean, Labour have been sort of supporting them, really, or certainly not um, not condemning them, not criticising them. And um, they did accept that bigger donation from Dale Vince, mm. who was so also a um, financial supporter of Just Stop Oil, of course. So, yes. um, uh, you know, I mean, if, if Labour don't take a tough line on, on Just Stop Oil, like that, that, you know, they will... Um, they will suffer at the ballot box, put it that way. Yes, I think so. And obviously we can't talk about ballot boxes today because there is a by-election uh, underway. But the one thing we know, if you were to ask ordinary working people up and down the country about what it is that they care about when it comes to pollution and when it comes to clean air, is they don't want to be paying massive charges to drive their cars around cities. No, and, um, you know, it's not just the London ultra-low emission zone, which, of course, has um, had a huge amount of coverage. There's all manner of cities, Bristol, Birmingham, yeah. Glasgow, Dundee, they've yeah. all... Newcastle as well. Newcastle, low emission zones in, in recent months. Um, Canterbury, Oxford, looking at these sort of bizarre schemes where you zone... Um, the city and then you fine or charge motorists for driving between different zones. Cambridge is suggesting a congestion charge. And I mean, motorists are actually quite right to, um, you know, think that people are ganging up against them and um, trying to force them out of their cars. Because, I mean, if you read the government's net zero strategy, I mean, part of it very much is to reduce road traffic. And, um, you know, you think of the sort of charges, restrictions and bans on petrol and diesel and so on. You know, it's more than just cutting emissions. It's more than just raising revenue. There is a big sort of strategy there to uh, rein in road traffic as part of this sort of net zero by 2050 mm. target. I know. Absolutely extraordinary stuff. Ross, good to see you. Uh, you got the cover of The Spectator this week, so look out for that as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We're going to talk uh, to you coming up. We'll take some calls uh, because we need to hear your voices on all manner of things this morning. Uh, the world of common sense is right here at Talk TV. We're going to talk uh, about the ridiculous charges that councils are putting on people for doing ordinary things which might have been regarded as nuisances before, but now you're getting fined. We'll also talk about the banking business and why it is that Coots has got themselves into so much trouble and why the BBC has suddenly turned into what can only be described as a propaganda machine for the left. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On DAB+, on the app, talk radio and talk TV. 
Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, We're coming ever closer to August. I know that sounds weird, uh, but there's a reason why I say it, because in August, of course, there's something that happens in Scotland, north of the border. Uh, It's called the Edinburgh Festival. uh, And lots of people go there. Uh, Some of them don't do very much that's interesting at all. but Some people do some very interesting things. And Alex Salmon uh, is here with me uh, from that very part of the world. We're going to talk about the Edinburgh Festival a little bit later on uh, because we've got a bit of an announcement to make. But before that, uh, what we should do, of course, is... uh, look back at your glittering career in the banking sector uh, and seek your guidance on what the hell Coots thought they were doing because uh, this must be a relatively recent development. Well, what an achievement. Yeah. Coots Bank, the Royal Bank, been around since 1692, if Uh I remember right, Uh, and they've managed to make a victim Mm. out of Nigel Farage. (laughs) I mean, this is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you know, Nigel Farage... A nation weeps. Well, Nigel Farage has made a victim out of the rest of the country in Brexit. Well, that's what you say. Well, I say that. Yes, he did. But now he's the victim, Mm. thanks to Coots. What are they thinking of? I know. I mean, you know, if banks stopped banking every customer they felt, they felt, was an unpleasant chancer. Mm. They'd have they'd be left. Well, exactly right. Well, uh, people have been asking the question, you know, who else has got an account at Coots that they might wish to look into? Yeah, well, King Charles. You know, I, um, I, I think King Charles, given that Coots is the Royal Bank, and has been for, mm. uh, for more than uh, 300 years, I, I, I think that King Charles should personally apologise to Nigel Farage yeah. uh, for this effrontery of uh, cancelling his banking facilities. Yes. Uh, and I, I do think it should be made by Royal, Royal Warren because I don't think Nigel would settle for anything less than a full frontal apology yes. from King Charles. Well, listen, he's already had one from John Sopel, um, <coughs> oh, which yeah. came as a bit of a surprise to John Sopel. No, no, I mean, with due respect to John, he doesn't have the full impact that, that King Charles has. <laughs> no, I mean, look, Chris has been trading on that, the Royal Bank thing for, uh, for you know, not we're actually part of the Royal I was... Once upon a time, I was the economist of the Royal Bank. Yes. <clears throat> but Coots is not just... Well, that was before the, the, the NatWest takeover, though, wasn't it? Well, it was the Royal Bank took over NatWest. Right. But, of course, more recently, when <clears throat> the Royal Bank name fell into something of question because of uh, Fred the Shred yes. and all that sort of stuff, they decided to... Gordon Brown's mate. Uh, they tried to rename. Instead of the Royal Bank group, it became the NatWest group. I kind of resented that, incidentally. Mm. I mean, you know, banks go through bad times. Yes. So you can't, you can't just keep changing the name because you... You know, you lose a few billion quid here and there. Right. Uh, but nonetheless, Coots within the Royal Bank <coughs> was the Royal Bank. It, yeah. It's the bank where the, the Queen Mother, where Her Majesty the late Queen... I was told, her. and I don't know whether you can know this to be true, that the, 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 the Queen Mother had a massive overdraft with uh, with Coots due yeah, to yeah, her but, but, uh, gambling facility. Well, she, she had... Uh, I don't know if that's true, but she had certainly unbond, uh, you know, several million cases of gin, so that, that was more than enough collateral <laughs> yes. for the for any default. Uh, I, but I met the Queen Mother, I thought she was a wonderful lady. Uh, when it came to the Commons uh, uh, tributes to her, I, I wished her a sunny day with the going good. Yes, I'm sure she would have appreciated that. Um, but, but yeah, fascinating that, that they should cause themselves such self-harm. I was talking to Isabel Oakeshott this morning about this, and, and clearly they didn't think that the reaction to what they did would be what it was. They thought that everyone would go, good on you. Yeah. You've rid us of that pesty, pesky, ghastly Who figure. Who rid us yes. of this exactly. turbulent farage? Exactly. <laughs> but in fact, it went completely the other way. No, she should really leave that sort of thing to the electorate. Yes. And when you're a banker, you really should not. I mean, I was in Coots recently for a meeting and a wonderful time and 
uh, and I saw it was bedecked in, in rainbow colours. Right. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to show their support for Pride Month, but it wasn't it? I mean, the whole bank mm. banking hall was, was, you know, was full of rainbows. It's over the top, isn't it? Uh, and, you know, I'm, you know, I support Pride Month. I go on Pride marches. Uh, I've been a gay politician of the year at one point. Uh, I've done all that, but I, I just, I, I think what indicates, I mean, banks should be banking, right? Yeah. The, their job is to provide finance or not provide mm. finance uh, and not to make value judgments on their customers. Yes. Because once you start going down the road, I mean, it's all right. I mean, you know, everybody, John Sopel was trying to have a laugh at Nigel Farage's expense and mm. ended up having to apologise. But, yeah, I mean, people laughing at Nigel Farage, to me, is fine. You know, I mean, people well, it's I a tell free jokes, country. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, Nigel Farage um, himself was talking to Julie Hartley Brew this morning. He's not calling for the head of, of uh, Coots to be fired. Well, that's he's very not, reasonable of him. Well, yeah, but he is a very reasonable guy. I know well, Nigel. You know, well, yeah, he is but, not an extremist. But, he is but, not a bigot. But, he is not a racist. So he has Coots, some views that some people disagree with. Coots Bank have managed to create a situation mm. where they put Nigel Farage in the position of generously saying he doesn't think the head of the Coots Bank yeah. should resign. And that is just such a blunder. What I would do uh, is I would identify... Uh, the person who hmm. took this ridiculous decision based on politics. Well, it was a committee, wasn't and it? say, would you like to stand for election uh, to become an MP hmm. uh, instead of being a banker? Because clearly they've missed their vacation. Hmm. Or, or maybe they want to go into a pulpit somewhere. Yes. Or maybe have a radio or show. Or perhaps join the civil service where they can, <laughs> uh, yeah, to their heart's content, ask for people's pronouns every time they send an email. Can I, it's just a serious point, Mike. Hmm. The, you know, this is obviously not just about Nigel Farage. I mean, there was this, this case recently of the, the, the very prominent blogger, Wings Over Scotland, yes. who has a vast following. He had the same problem, didn't and he? And he described in exact detail how one of his accounts was suspended uh, and he traced it back to an individual who hmm. was in a position to make that decision, right. you know, who seemed to be there to educate other banking employees. He was a transgender representative, well, I understand. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I don't know the detail of that, but mm. what I do know that person was in a position to influence the decision and their job seemed to be to educate banking employees on what the politically correct yes. thing to think about was. You know, I think you should educate bankers on how to be bankers. Mm. And I think we should insist on them having banking qualifications yes. so as they make wise well, financial decisions. Well, notwithstanding your involvement with the Royal mm. Bank, you know, the fact that they couldn't seem to run a bank at all because they started carving up various different investment packages and selling it by the million well, no, the to people in America who were buying houses they couldn't afford tells you that they were a bit overstretched. Right, OK. Well, the Royal Bank, I'll tell you something, the Royal Bank bought all their problems. Yeah. They, they bought their problems from ABN AMRO and, incidentally, they bought their problems from NatWest Capital Markets. Yeah. The Royal Bank, the original Royal Bank, had no capital exposure yeah. like that at all. Mm. They bought it all, which is a nonsense. But, you know, the, the big joke 10 years ago on more when the... The banking crisis was on. That uh, Fred the Shred, Fred Goodwin was head of the Royal Bank of Scotland. Yeah. A guy called Andrew Hornby, who mm. I think had done his training in Tesco, uh, was head of the Bank of Scotland. And then, of course, there's Terry Wogan. And the joke was, who's the odd person out between Terry Wogan, Fred Fred Goodwin, and Andy Hornby? Mm. And the answer was Terry Wogan right. because he was the only one of the three with a banking qualification. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, breaking news for you on the subject of King Charles apologising to Nigel Farage. The sovereign grant used to fund the monarchy's official duties will be 12% of the Crown Estate's net profits next year, down from 25%, according to the Treasury. So he might be uh, 
asking his friends at Coots for a bit of an overdraft. Well, it will. I mean, that, that, that's obviously... Has just, I mean, the Coots are having a bad morning. They really are. <laughs> well, they're having a bad week. But as you say, they brought all this on themselves. But when on earth did this whole business of, you know, politically... Um, exposed persons become a thing because technically you could be one of them. Yeah, well, I'm, um, I'm actually one of these because if, if you lead a political party, even a, a party as newborn as, as Alipa, mm. you, you become by automatically a, a, a politically exposed person. And that, unfortunately, you know, the trouble is that instead of having human decision making, yeah. uh, uh, you know, deciding things, there's algorithms which, you know, flag up people mm. as and Farage will be politically exposed as well because of his political activities and therefore you get things like even if a, not, it hasn't happened to me I should say uh, but it, even if transferred a few hundred quid mm. it gets flagged up as yeah, something yeah. potentially about money laundering yeah. or something now, but they do money laundering all the time I mean I was involved in, in well, wait, I you better rephrase that who does money laundering all the time well I was involved in certainly not Nigel Farage no, he's never been involved does. in money i just like to make that very clear well what I was going to say to you was there was a moment when I nearly bought a house a few years ago um, and there was some money being moved from one account to another account and money laundering came up and the people who were looking at whether or not to loan the money said you, you need to, uh, you know, absolutely account for every single penny yeah. of where this money came from. Now, Ridiculous. Well, I, see, I don't mind the legislation. What I think happens, and why you get the most uh, egregious cases, is, is where the sort of algorithms flags it up and counts are automatically suspended. Right. And then you have to go through all sorts of rigmarole to get them unsuspended. Yeah. And, and I know people have been in that position, and it was just because they'd been flagged up as politically uh, yes. exposed. So, but, is, but is this an EU thing, that, that, that you become a politically exposed person? I, is, I, it, is it their legislation? Well, I, I, to tell you the absolute truth, Mike, you finally stumped me on a question. Right. I, 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 I know I would eventually. Except I'm naturally suspicious every time you start to blame the EU for all the... I'm I do not actually, blaming them. I do actually think that the uh, the legislation, the muted, the proposed legislation uh, of uh, saying, you know, say putting an obligation on banks to... This not, is what the government may do. Political mm. value, moral judgments on anybody, despite their views. Mm. You know, as long as they've got legal views... Right. Uh, then the banks should not be interested in what these views are, in my opinion. Right. Well, even if they've got illegal views, that shouldn't prevent them from having a bank account, should it? I don't even know what an illegal view is. Well, What is an illegal view? Well, I mean, the, the, there's a difference between somebody having a view that you don't approve of. Yes. Uh, like Nigel Farage. He has a range of views that I don't approve right. of. But not everybody doesn't approve of them. But I don't approve of banks or supermarkets or... Tinker tailor, candlestick makers, right. or boarding houses. Yeah. I mean, for example, I, I rather liked the case, I think it was in Northern Ireland, uh, where a, a gay couple uh, were refused mm. into a, a boarding house yes. because uh, the, the guy didn't like homosexuals. Yeah. And now, that was, was Scotland, I think. Wasn't, wasn't Northern Ireland Northern, was the cake, I think, wasn't it? It was, it was a cake. It was a cake oh, you're quite right. Yeah. You're, you're obviously, your encyclopedic knowledge is greater. Yes. Anyway, the, 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 the homosexual couple won uh, their case, yeah. and rightly so. It's not the job of people providing a service to make any value judgments on somebody's lifestyle, their political views, or anything else. The only thing a bank should judge is whether it's a financially proper a proposition. But there are libertarians and some on the left who say, actually, you free marketeers have got it all wrong. Because surely if the free market allows somebody to start a business, they can give that business or withhold that business to anybody they wish, can't they? Yeah, but... I mean, I mean, I'm not making a case for Coots here. I'm no, just saying that's the opposite case. Well, because the other thing you can argue about Coots is the, the so-called million-pound rule. Yeah. 
I'm not sure this million pound rule actually exists. It doesn't. No, I, I, I mean, because in your previous example, the, the Queen Planet must have been a million pound overdraft. Right, exactly right. And but, also there are several what you might call aristos who are probably down at heel who've got massive estates somewhere in Gloucestershire who might not have lots of cash but have got an account at well, Coots. Well, that's called collateral. It is. Uh, it's called old money. And there's not much of it. That's why they open it up to the public at the weekends. Um, but listen, let's have a look at a clip just before we break, because uh, David Davis was amongst those yesterday uh, in Parliament talking about the banking problems. Let's have a look. The opposition politician he was referring to, of course, was Nigel Farage, whose bank account was closed, not because he was a PEP, not because of commercial reasons, but because his views did not align with the values of Coote's Bank, a thinly veiled political discrimination, a vindictive, irresponsible and undemocratic action. But in addition, NatWest also disclosed confidential details about Farage's account to the BBC and lied about the commercial viability of his account, actions which ought to jeopardise his banking licence and should certainly worry NatWest's 19 million other customers. 19 million other customers. Um, hold that thought for a moment because we're going to talk about uh, David Davis uh, in another reason, for another reason, with Alex Salmon. Coming next on Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Alex Salmon is here with us, uh, the leader of the Alapa Party, as I now say it, uh, former Minister of, uh, First Minister of Scotland. I've discovered where it all went wrong, except for that question. It is the appointment of Dame Alison Rose, who's apparently the woman who had dinner or was at a dinner with the BBC business correspondent shortly before the story came out that uh, Nigel Farage's account had been cancelled because he didn't have enough money. Um, she apparently was uh, the one charged with changing the name of the bank back to Nat West. But, well, that's typical. Uh, um, so that's, uh, yeah. But she was also hired for her efforts to fashion the bank into an organisation combating climate change and sexism in business. Well, two things there. One, just how stupid it was to change the name of the bank yeah. back to Nat West. Because, I, I mean, I'm older. When I was comes to the old bank, the, it was a merger with Williams and Glynn's. Mm, I remember and them. They, they were trying to work out what the name of the group should be. Yeah. But everybody thought, this is great. You know, how lucky... You are to be able to call your bank the Royal Bank. Yeah, uh, you know because they, you know a certain amount of kudos. Mm. Now, even if it has you know a bad period, yeah, it's, I mean the monarchies had bad periods, yes. but it's still a great. I mean, people would would pay billions to call their organisation. I mean, the Royal Talk TV. Yes. You know, would be would be a much desired. Might uh, turn off a few Republicans. <clears throat> no, you might turn off for some folk, but but people listen. You know, I'm a Republican, but I, I can see the benefit. I forgive you. Well, that doesn't matter. I can see the benefit in, yeah. in having that of name. Course. So, so this dame lady, mm. uh, she clearly is a, a woman of fine judgment. So what, what, uh, are we actually saying that she was responsible for changing the name? Yeah. And has she been giving out information to the, the BBC? Well, we're not sure. Customers? There is an allegation that, that, that oh, yeah. she and he were at the same dinner the night before the, the story came out. Well, because that it's only an allegation, of course. Of course. But, but there can be nothing, incidentally, just... I mean, there's some things you can and can't do in life. And if you're a banker or a lawyer, for that matter, you cannot, you cannot give out confidential information on your clients. Mm. It, it is one of the, the great no-nos yes. of these professions. Exactly right. <clears throat> but things do leak, of course, and nobody knows how that happens. But um, David Davis, who we just saw speaking in the House of Commons there, fine he, man. He doesn't um, miss, does he? Now, <laughs> I'm happy to say that I'm not always on his side, um, but coming up next month, I will be on his side uh, at an event which you've got planned for everybody. Well, this is called The, the Eyes Have It. The yes. Eyes Have It. And over 10 days, from the, the 4th to the 13th of August in the great Spiegel tent. Mm. 
seats 450. Yep. You know, it's like a big top circus tent. It is. Like an arena, like right. a coliseum. Yes. I'll be taking on David Davis on a nightly basis about all the things we disagree about. Mm. Uh, independence, right. where obviously my side, the goodies, I believe in independence, his side, the baddies, don't. <laughs> uh, I'll be against Brexit, he'll yeah. be for it. Again, yeah. goodies and baddies. Uh, I'll be for republicanism, he'll be for the royal family. Yeah. But we've got a very special uh, debate uh, about the public sector right to strike. Yes. Uh, so we thought to ourselves, who is... Uh, Who's the man most noted in the airways for trying condemning trade unions, working people, stopping them striking? Then we alighted on Mike Graham. Yes, and then we thought, I'm not really against working people. I'm for working well, people. Well, you just want them working. I know. Yeah, I just you'll like get, them working. Listen, yeah. you'll, get, you'll get your chance in the Spiegel there, and you better take it because you're up against. <laughs> I'm going to take it. You're, you're up against. You're up against Mike Lynch. Yes, who, I'm looking forward to this. Well, I'll be supporting. Yeah, and we'll be against you and mm. David Davis. Yes, uh, and then we'll, we'll we'll see the the, the real. Well, test. of course, so, the ultimate irony would be if I was due to have a debate with Mike Lynch, but I couldn't get there because the RMT were on strike. Wouldn't that be funny? Right, so, in fact, I've decided you, to fly listen, because save, I don't trust the trains. Save your best lines for the Spiegel test. I've always got, I've always got new lines. Anyway, the, the best thing is not that, not that the debaters aren't fantastic because clearly clear we are. Of course, right? but also the chairs mm. uh, because we start with John Berko, yeah. uh, who I call the real speaker yes. of the House of Commons. Will he be bringing his wool sack with him? Well, you know, if, if John is such a you know, character, he is. So remember, and then uh, he hands over to to Brian Cox or Logan Roy. Yeah, uh, so there'll be no bad language. <laughs> <laughs> chair. Then we've got Dame Elder Lang, the, yeah. you know, the current chair of Ways and Means, and right. the, the Commons, a, a Glaswegian, incidentally, mm. a very distinguished lady. And we've got Bernard Ponsonby, the SDV legend, yes. uh, who does, who's a great mimic, incidentally. So he, he, he'll be able to mimic. I think I've seen some of his part, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Any SNP <laughs> involvement? Well, the, the lots in the. I mean, in the debating side, I, I've got lots of uh, MSPs mm. from the SNP who'll be for independence, obviously, and uh, against Brexit. And mm. then David will be bringing up uh, a contingent of uh, London-based uh, big hitters. Characters. So it'll be our, our job will be to send them homewards to think again. Indeed. And for those of you who don't get that reference, look it up. Um, just Google those words and you'll find out. But look, it's, um, going to, it's going to be boisterous. It will be good. I, I mean, people will be enjoying themselves. Yeah. It'll be lively, to say the least. Mm. But above all, it'll be fun yes. and exciting. And it's all compressed into a single hour. You know, and presided over by the formidable Mr. Zmina Ahmed Sheikh, who yeah. takes no nonsense from any of them, including Logan Roy. An hour will be nowhere near long enough. I mean, you know, for, for me and Mick Lynch, you'll need at least an hour just for the preamble. Oh, no, the, you, have to, you only get an hour because you have to clear out after an hour. And the, the Uruguayan tap dancers come out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they'll get a bigger. No, won't get a bigger audience. Um, let's talking of the SNP. What's going on up there? I hear the word embezzlement has been mentioned. Well, this is this chief constable mm. uh, Ian Livingston gave an interview to BBC yesterday, where where he said that the investigation into the finances had expanded to include uh, embezzlement. Mm. Now, this chief constable chooses words carefully. Clearly, knows what he's talking about. Embezzlement is, uh, that's like aggravated mm. uh, theft. Right. You know, theft is obviously theft when you steal things. Embezzlement is when you steal things from a position of trust. Mm. Uh, so obviously that doesn't mean anybody's guilty, of course, because no, you know nobody's been uh, nobody's been charged uh, as yet. But it, it does mean that the investigation is very, very serious. I mean, the chief constable does not go on mm. the, the BBC and says, look, this investigation is complex, it's been expanded to include embezzlement, uh, unless he knows what he's talking about. Right. So that's a very... I mean, let's put it this way, it's not going to be over by Christmas. No, I was going to say, did he give any indication of how long 
it goes on for. No, and, and nor would he, nor should he. Uh, but the point he was making is they don't, you know, they don't follow a press timetable or newspaper deadline or mm. a, a, a talk TV show deadline. They, they follow the evidence and they take whatever time they need to, to pursue the evidence. Mm. And meanwhile, Hamza Yusuf continues to, to reign, I suppose you might call it. Um, but he's not making much of an impact, is he? No, I mean, he, he has inherited a pretty poisoned legacy. Yeah. My complaint about Hamza, I mean, I know people say he's useless as this, that, and the next thing. I don't think he's useless at all, but you know, you really have to put clear tartan water mm. between what you're going to do and what your predecessor did. Mm. And, and instead of that, you know, we've had all this, you know, uh, Nicola's the greatest politician on earth and let's send her flowers. You know, if you're carving out a, a new leadership, you have to set a new agenda. And I mean, one idea would be, you know, I saw a statement from Hamza yesterday saying, you know, the two-child benefit mm. thing, you know, this is the, the it's Keir Starmer is in hot water uh, for, for saying he's not going to abolish the, the two-child yeah. limit on, on, on child uh, benefit and tax allowance. Mm. Uh, and rightly so, in my view, because, you know, if you're not going to do things differently from the last lot, then what's the point in voting for the new lot? Yeah. But, you see, Hamza's got the opportunity to, to exercise that in Scotland, he, he could introduce, and in addition to the child payments that are already made, the equivalent of the uh, taking away the cap on the, on the two-child benefit. And Scotland is a low birth rate at the yeah. present moment. It would be a good thing to encourage you know, people to have more kids in Scotland and help with child poverty. But this is one of the arguments about the, the, the whole situation, isn't it? Is it? Would people not have children if they weren't going to get the benefit? Mm. Would they have a child if they were? I'm not sure that that's but, anything more than a shibboleth anyway. But what you can see is taking away that cap will take a lot of kids, hundreds of thousands of kids, out of poverty, out of child poverty, which must be a good thing. Mm. But from Hamza's point of view, there's also the politics. Look, we've got a Scottish Parliament. If people want to know the Parliament does things differently, that it, it's worth something, there's a, a value in having it. You're not set by Westminster. I mean, that happened for hundreds of years. Yeah. Now we have a Scottish Parliament reconvened. They want to see the Parliament doing things. There was an exact equivalent 10 years ago when I was First Minister. That you may remember the bedroom tax. Yes, I do. Well, you know, I wiped it out in Scotland. Right. I just wiped it out and paid people the equivalent back. Now, technically, of course, the UK government could have taken me to court, mm. like, like they've threatened to do on the bottle tax and the, All the, rest of it. Uh, and the self-identification. But, of course, the, the Tory Liberal Coalition didn't right. because they knew that 99% of the country were against the bedroom mm. tax. But even if, if he did what you used to do before that, where sometimes you would deliberately, in my view, you can argue and say that wasn't what I did at all. You used to ask for things that you knew you couldn't get, and then you could blame them for not giving them to you. Well, that's, and that was very that clever. Wasn't what I did at all. And that was a very smart move, and it gave everybody in Scotland the opinion that sort of Westminster was against them. But he's not even doing that. Well, Hamza said last week or the week before last, he said he couldn't be expected to produce rabbits out of hats. Right. Actually, in politics... Producing rabbits out of hats is sometimes the job. Yeah, that's what you have to do right. to demonstrate you're a, a leader with ideas, with a new vision for the country. And if I mean, if Hamza feels strongly, as he seems to, about this cap on the the two sometimes called the rape clause, because mm. you get off it if you can demonstrate you've been raped, which yeah. is a pretty obnoxious thing yeah. to demonstrate in legislation. But if he feels really strongly about it, then set your own agenda. Yeah. Don't say, oh, we'll help Labour do mm. it. Say, we're going to do it, yeah. and we'll find the money, and we'll do it, and we'll show there is a value and a worth 
in Scotland making decisions mm. for itself. Yes, I think that would uh, be very good advice. You should take it. Good to see you, Alex. Uh, we'll see you again, I'm sure, before uh, the big day uh, uh, well, starts we're, we're August the 4th, is it? Uh, August the 4th to the 30th, right. debates on independence, Brexit, and of course on the public sector like right. the strike, where Mick and I are already in confabs Dickens. about how to deal with you <laughs> and David Davis. And where can you get tickets for this stuff? Well, you go onto the festival uh, fringe website right. uh, and you just and the on, eyes have or, it. Or, or, or put a plug in, the eyes have it. Okay. Or, or you can, I'll go and do that because I'll tweet it out as well so people can um, great find stuff, it there. Good um, stuff. We need a full house for, looking for forward you. To I've been a welcoming party. Yeah. Is there a green room? Well, you'll need one I will. afterwards. I always <laughs> demand it. And uh, M&Ms, but no red ones. Um, this is Talk TV. Isabel Hardman coming next on the NHS. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. I've uh, got a, a message here from somebody who's had an NHS story to tell. It's great to listen to your show, Mike, but I'm listening with closed eyes. My sight went from my right eye on the 6th of June, so I was rushed to Western Eye, London, to be told after a four-hour wait in A&E that my interlocular... Uh, interocular lens from cataract surgery had slipped out of place and I need surgery. Three letters later, I had an outpatient appointment for the 31st of August, then the 26th of July, then the 16th of August, now the 24th of August. The reason? The strikes. It's a disgrace. So much for an emergency. I can't drive, walk, cook, read or watch TV. Happy days. I'm 74. I hope I don't lose my sight permanently. Well, that is a terrible story and one which I suspect will be repeated in various places over the course of of the next few days and weeks because once again uh, the doctors are on strike but this time it's the consultants not the junior doctors let's talk to Isabel Hardman assistant editor at the Spectator um, Isabel very good morning to you thanks for joining us hi there thanks for having me on I mean a difficult time for the NHS I suppose would be a bit of an understatement the British Medical Association say that they're left behind that accountants are making more money lawyers are making more money engineers they're all making six times more money uh, than they were uh, and the consultants have, have somehow fallen behind they're going to struggle to convince the public that they're badly off aren't they yeah, I think it is quite a hard sell given uh, how much higher average uh, consultant pay is uh, than average um, uh, public sector pay and indeed uh, the, the wider average pay in this country. And the British Medical Association is one of those trade unions that enjoys probably more respectability um, than some others. Obviously, doctors in, uh, enjoy much more sympathy uh, than, say, train drivers when they go on strike. But over the history of the health service, the, the BMA has, has not always won its battles with the government over pay and conditions. Uh, in the 1970s, for instance, it ended up being nicknamed the British Money Association because right. it had got its position uh, in the strikes then so so badly wrong. So it is, you know, it, it is tricky for the BMA as well as for ministers. Yes, I think so. And also, I've had a lot of communication from quite a few consultants who say they're not going on strike over this couple of days because they don't agree with the BMA and many people see it as a very left-wing union organisation. It's not an association at all. It really is run by some very uh, left-wing people who would like to see the Tory government kicked out of office and would like to see the Labour government uh, put another £100 billion a year into the uh, NHS. Yeah, well, this is the risk that the BMA runs, is that actually it loses the consent of its own doctors for the strikes. And that happened back in 2016 with the junior doctors strike, where a lot of junior doctors were horrified to discover that the red lines of the junior doctors committee uh, were not their red lines, which were on safety rather than money and causing disruption to the government for, for disruption's sake, basically. Um, and it's you know, reasonably well accepted within the medical world, uh, within certainly within healthcare circles more widely, 
that the BMA tends to have, uh, as you say, the, the more militant end of doctors working in the trade union. That's you know, partly a function of who's been, who is attracted to work full time in the trade union. Yes. And what about the junior doctor strike? It just finished, um, I guess, on Tuesday, really, didn't it? Um, after five days, presumably that made the waiting lists even longer. Presumably that caused an awful lot of um, people to not be able to see their uh, doctor for particular procedures. Um, and ha- did it have any effect on the government at all? So I think obviously the government's using it as um, an explanation for why waiting lists are going up, um, which they are. They're going to new record levels every time the figures are released, currently 7.4 million, um, still rising, still expected to rise much further. Um, And I think in this instance, it probably is fair to say that the junior doctors and the consultants striking have caused a great deal of damage to the NHS's ability to clear the uh, treatment backlog because that's something that NHS chiefs themselves are saying is causing them real trouble and uh, and sort of despair within their own trusts as they try to deal with the pressures that they've got. I think though it's, it's worth just stepping back and asking why doctors might be doing this because they, you know, generally doctors don't strike willingly. They're not like train drivers who, you know, I think we, most of us have, have got used to train strikes to the extent that it's sort of uh, exciting when a train arrives on time these days. Um, but <laughs> doctors, I think, or are... At all. Or, or at all. Yeah, you know, it's just a bonus that you're actually able to get into work. But um, I think doctors are exhausted emotionally, physically, mentally after the pandemic in a way that probably we haven't given them enough credit for. And, you know, we clapped them during the early days of COVID, but they haven't really had a proper break since. Uh, The wellbeing provisions for them uh, are pretty sketchy. A lot of them are being closed or under threat of closure. And I think these strikes are as much an expression of kind of anguish from doctors who who really need a bit of help um, as they are about pay. Uh, And I think if, if, if there had been a greater acknowledgement of what we were expecting doctors to go through which was far over and above the the normal level of trauma that they just have to deal with in their jobs you know day to day uh, then we might not have been seeing this widespread Mm. industrial action. Yeah maybe so but I've I've often had conversations with people about why the NHS doesn't work because I don't think there's any doubt that it doesn't work and I know that we can talk till the cows come home that there are plenty of good people in it and there are plenty of people who do their jobs very well and there are certainly people who have good experiences but by and large you know from the GP surgery to the dentist to the A&E departments uh, which are overcrowded to you know not enough beds for, for patients ambulances not working very well you know Nobody seems to want to accept the fact that the NHS is broken because the NHS broke it. You know, I don't accept that it was simply down to bad government and bad health ministers and bad secretaries of state. I think the way the NHS is run by the NHS is the problem. What in particular do you think breaks it about the NHS? What are you talking about, managers? Yeah, I think the managers. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's badly run. I think if if you were to look at how individual hospitals are run. They're not run well. If you were to look at how individual trusts are run, they're not run well. Priorities don't seem to be uh, towards the patients. You know, um, it seems to me they've got too many uh, employees who are not working in the medical side of the business, and they've got all sorts of other th- of priorities going on. Um, and they're they're hopelessly old-fashioned in terms of how they look at things. You know, their technology is not what it should be. You know, I've had probably experiences in almost 
10 or 12 different countries. Every time I used to go on holiday with my kids, one of them always ended up needing some kind of medical treatment. And wherever you were in the world, from Mexico to Spain to France to, you know, Italy, it was always better. And I know you might have had to pay a little bit of money, but it just seemed easier. So I think there's a number of things there. Uh, in terms of management, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because actually the NHS has far fewer managers than other comparable European health systems. It's quite an undermanaged service. And I think that's one of the, the issues is it, it's very easy for us to um, have managers as sort of the bogeymen in this. Um, but having, having just written a book on the history of the NHS, uh, I, I was fascinated by the fact that it was Margaret Thatcher who introduced this layer of management mm. to the NHS because she commissioned a report by Roy Griffiths from Sainsbury's who found that, I mean, he had this famous phrase, which was if Florence Nightingale were walking the corridors of a hospital, she would be asking who is in charge uh, because management before them mm. was so haphazard and old fashioned. Mm. So, you know, m managers are not a sort of statist labour invention. They're a, a free market factor invention. And mm. One of the problems is that we don't actually have enough, so they're they're quite thinly spread. Um, you know, potentially the management is is poor quality. There's definitely an accountability problem yeah. uh, in the NHS that you know if you fail, you often just get moved somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and you I have mean, I've got lots of people who who I speak to on a re reasonably regular basis who've either worked in the NHS or who who still work in it you know, at sort of nursing level or even at, at a doctor's level, and they talk about there being still a relative lack of accountability of, of stock yeah. being bought and, and sort of left in, in, in stock rooms and cupboards and never used, you know, stuff yeah. that, that they don't need to buy. They buy, they pay too much money for, 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 uh, for medicine that they should, you know, all of those things. Yeah. And I just yeah. think it's wrong to continually blame politicians when clearly if you were in any other organisation, you would look at the organisation and say, well, what are you doing about this? Yeah, and I mean, I think that the way in which the NHS has learned to function has been because it's such a political and centralised system, it is a bit like a football team uh, that needs a coach the whole time in mm. that um, if politicians take their eye off the ball, the NHS can quite easily slip into quite lazy mm. ways of, of performing. Now, the, the flip side of that, obviously, is that politicians don't help because they keep reorganizing yeah. the service and um, they you know they treat it as what Jeremy Hayward who used to be the, the most senior civil servant in this country described as the, the greatest train set on Whitehall they like to, to move the tracks around yeah. and that can be really disorientating because you have these new structures and people have to work out how they relate to one another and they have to reapply for their jobs or they get a new job title and new organization title and you know the amount of energy that that takes up that has nothing to do with outcomes for patients is quite extraordinary so there is that and on procurement, the, you know, the NHS can be really useless, actually. Yeah. Um, and it's also, you know, it's, again, uh, and I don't think the NHS is, is all about funding. It, it, it is underfunded when it comes to capital. So its equipment is outdated. Its hospital buildings are you know, manifestly crumbling. Yeah. But also the money that it does have, and it has a lot of money, is spent in the wrong in the wrong place so we've got a study out today saying that you know a lot of people are, are dying with preventable conditions or being hospitalized with preventable conditions and that's because the the model of the nhs as it is at the moment and really as it was conceived by nye bevan in 1948 prioritizes acute services so when you're properly ill as opposed to uh when you're starting to show symptoms you're at an earlier stage of a disease or perhaps even 
you haven't developed uh, an illness related to, for instance, obesity, which is obviously a you know a huge issue for the NHS. We don't invest very much in primary care. We don't invest very much in community services, but we do invest a lot in acute. And it means that people aren't seen at the appropriate stage of their journey. And obviously when you're really sick, you cost the health service a, a lot more. So, you know, if we were gonna reform the system, but not abolish the NHS, which I just don't think the public would, would weather, then you should be reloading the money from acute to primary and community and prevented preventive services because that's where you get much better value for money and patients who actually you know like your um uh, your viewer who, who you quoted at the start of this mm. conversation could have been seen uh, in a way that they're able to carry on living their life yes. rather than feeling like they're suddenly sort of trapped at home in this nhs waiting list hell right and that is the problem listen we could obviously talk for ages about this as well so listen really grateful for your time but let's have a look at the book uh, it's out now fighting for life the 12 battles that made our nhs and the struggle for its future um love to talk to you again soon isabel hardman assistant editor from the spectator thank you very much indeed on the day that consultants have decided to go out on strike because they think they deserve more money this is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.